Accelerating careers in real estate with Nick Carman. So this evening, I'm sat with Gary McCluskey, Global Design Managing Director for Greystar, an architect for 25 years. His past catalogue as Strategic Design Advisor has covered nearly £5 billion worth of development projects in GDV. So Gary, before we get going, many in the audience will be familiar or at least be sort of maybe bored of me banging on about this theory that I've got about how our careers can be captured in chapters. You're either accelerating or you're consolidating. And I personally think once we recognize this, I think you can start to see in your own path where you've been at your best and when you have more to give. So I'll ask you in a moment sort of uh, to go back to the beginning of your career. Uh, but I've got to say, I'm curious. Do you consider yourself successful? Whoa, and that's a big question off the bat. I think successful as in I'm doing something I love, you know. Um, that's the way I would kind of think about it. Um, I don't really know any other way of thinking about it, you know. It, yeah, I'm, yeah, I suppose it's sort of, you know, I'm, I'm doing the job that, you know, I love and uh, and I really enjoy it. And so I suppose that's a, that's a measure of success. I, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, so let's go back to the beginning then. Tell us, tell us all where it all began. I think it, it, when I was a kid, I used to draw a lot. You know, I mean, I, I, I would, I would sort of, you know, I, I could start a drawing on a Friday evening um, and finish it on a Sunday without any sleep. You know, I mean, it, it's sort of, it was a kind of level of focus, I suppose, that was, that was a little bit crazy. You know, I, I sort of wanted to draw, start drawing it and I wouldn't stop until I'd finished, finished the drawing. And so I kind of talked to a careers officer about that and um, they sent me for an interview with a with an architect's practice and I'd never even I'd never even thought about being an architect uh, but it seemed kind of interesting um, and I went along to this interview with a and I think it was he was a kind of relatively young guy who'd set up his own practice um, Stephen Gordon and uh, you know he, was, he wasn't long at university I don't think um, and you know I, I kind of started working there um, and I was there for about four weeks, and I sort of thought, I'm not sure I really like this guy, um, and I'm not enjoying the work that I'm doing. And so one day he came back and uh, sort of said to me, you know, what are you doing? Uh, and I said, well, I'm packing up my stuff, and I'm leaving. And uh, and he said, well, it's only three o'clock. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm leaving, and I'm not coming back, you know. And so <laughs> I could have uh, left that that job sort of thinking to myself I just don't want to ever work for anyone that I don't like and I don't want to work in a job that I don't like you know um, and you know that was just thinking about that at 17 was probably a little bit naive um, but it's one thing that I've always kind of thought about as I've been going through my whole career is that I, I, I just don't want to work with people that I don't like and I, I um, and I sort of, you know, I want to do projects and do things that I enjoy, you know. Um, and I suppose putting it another way, it's sort of, I only want to work with people that I like, you know, um, rather than sort of people that I don't like. Uh, <clears throat> but I went back to the careers office and they sort of said, well, look, there's another job with another architect's practice. And uh, that was a company called Grey Aitken Partnership. And, uh, and I went along there 
17 years old. Um, it was run by a couple of guys who used to work for the council um, and were doing a lot of social housing projects. And they'd set up on their own. And Alan Gray was, you know, an Irishman, Northern Irishman, uh, heavy drinker. I think everybody was in, in Glasgow at that point in time. Um, you know, the, we'd go to the pub on a sort of a Friday afternoon at one o'clock and then, you know, Alan would just keep us there all afternoon drinking. <laughs> so re replace drink for drawing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, was a, he was quite a character. A really, really lovely guy. Um, and uh, so I spent kind of like three years there and I started, you know, I started in that office sort of making the tea and the coffee and, you know, doing photocopies and running errands. And, and then they started to let me draw. Um, and I started to kind of, you know, help them out with drawings. Um, and, you know, and I started to really kind of enjoy working there. And it, I think it was, you know, it's partly the people, you know, um, I think the people, it's so important that you kind of work with people that, you know, you enjoy being with. Um, and we had a kind of really good camaraderie there. Um, and there was one guy, um, Greg Ferrier, who he was the most knowledgeable guy, I think, in there. Um, but he was also a kind of, uh, you know, a bit of a joker, always had loads of fun, was always kind of positive about stuff and, um, and never really kind of took things too seriously. But he was, you know, just as the depth of his knowledge and, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, skills that he had was, were kind of incredible. And I, I always thought about that sort of going through my career is that you kind of, you know, you don't want to be too serious about, you know, uh, what you're doing. You've got to make it fun for yourself and fun for other people, you know, and, and obviously there are serious moments, but, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, you've got to enjoy your job. Um, so I, I kind of, I, I, I spent three years there and then a friend of mine was working at another practice and he sort of said to me, you know, do you want to come and join us? Um, they were growing pretty quick and they were working in the retail sector. And I think I was 21 at the time. Uh, and I started working there and then within sort of three years of working there, I just kind of, I don't know, sort of performed really well. And they asked me at 22, I think, to go and open a branch office in Birmingham. Um, they gave me a company car, they gave me a company apartment, company credit card. And then I had kind of two sort of mid thirties architects sort of working for me. Um, and I was kind of traveling all over kind of England, um, looking after projects on site and dealing with builders 24 seven, you know, so, you know, it might've been, you know, three in the morning, I might've got a call, um, to get down to site that was, you know, two hours drive away. Um, so I'd kind of, you know, jump in the car, drive, drive along there. And I kind of, I suppose it was at that time in the eighties where, you know, it was sort of loads of money period. I don't know if you remember that, but yeah, I remember the Lamborghinis on my bedroom wall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone was kind of obsessed with money and being successful and, you know, sort of Thatcher's Britain and, you know, and you kind of get caught up on that. And I, I, I was kind of, you know, I had a company card, company credit card, you know, company flat. I couldn't kind of spend the money that I was earning. And I was only sort of 22, 23 years old. And, and I think at that point, I kind of thought that 
you know, any ambitions that I had of being successful in life, I'd kind of surpassed, which was a little bit odd. You know, I kind of thought, where, where can you go from here? You know, you kind of reached the point where you, you know, you're running your own office, you've got people working for you, um, you've got a, you know, you know, you know, access to, you know, an apartment, a car, you know, nothing that you're sort of paying for directly. Um, and it was a little bit surreal, you know, um, and that was just sort of before the, the sort of crash of the early nineties. And, uh, and I kind of, you know, I, I mean, I loved the job. I loved going on site. I loved dealing with the, the contractors, you know, trying to solve problems, you know, trying to fix details, um, you know, all of that sort of interaction with people I really enjoyed. Um, and I kind of enjoyed the, the fact that it was it was kind of tough, you know, um, you know, dealing with the um, uh, with difficult um, uh, construction projects. So, um, so I kind of at that point in time, people were kind of starting to offer me private work, you know, and trying to encourage me to set up on my own. Um, and I was, you know, I was kind of on the verge of just actually you know, setting up my own business at that age um, as an architect, but I wasn't qualified as an architect. I hadn't gone to university. I'd actually gone to college part-time and became an architectural technologist during my time at sort of Grey Ake. And, and then at, at this company, Craner Associates, it, um, you know, it, it, it sort of, you know, it just took off and, <clears throat> you know, I ended up doing the kind of the role of an architect without being qualified. So, um, so I ended up thinking maybe I should go to university, you know, which was a very odd thought because um, I, I sort of never thought about going to university. Uh, and I kind of thought maybe if I go to university and qualify as an architect, then I can set up my own business, you know. And that was so that that was the first kind of stage of my life, I suppose, is that sort of, you know, you know, starting to work in an office making tea and coffee um, to you know, running an office um, in a different city uh, to kind of sort of saying, right, you know, maybe I should sort of give all this up and go to university and actually become an architect. Um, it was the best thing I ever did. And I, I went from, you know, having the company car, company credit card, the company apartment, you know, running an office to living above a cat and dog home on three <laughs> three thousand pounds a year. And, and uh, I was never happier, you know, I mean, I, I sort of, you know, I've made some great friends. Um, I threw myself into the kind of the, the you know, the, the, the course and the ideas. I started playing in a band, you know, that I kind of played in for played played in for about five years. Um, and it was just it was just a, a totally different way of life. There was a just a, a massive freedom, I think, from kind of doing a nine to five or nine to nine job, you know, for for seven years and so gary drawing that university sort of uh, days then to a close you graduate with a first and with a little bit of luck as well you get offered a role by your university examiner rick mather i had no idea i had no idea that you know rick was one of the most well-respected architects in london you know i mean he's him i, I mean he kind of you know almost single-handedly kind of brought modernism back to to, to London um, at a time when everyone was kind of doing postmodern stuff. Um, you know, he, he was just 
a, a brilliant, brilliant architect. Uh, but I had no idea. I, I knew he was my external examiner, but I'd never actually looked at his website or anything. And so I kind of flew over to London, um, arrived at his office, and um, sat down waiting for Rick to come in and interview me. And I sat there for a couple of hours, and then Rick arrived, and he said, well, why are you sitting there? And I was like, well, I'm waiting for you to in interview me. He said, there's no interview. There's your desk. Get to work. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it was like, oh, okay. And so I kind of, you know, I joined Rick Mather Architects. And at the time, I think Rick Mather and David Chipperfield, um, I think Claudio Silverstream, you know, were all the architects who were kind of, you know, doing this minimalist, modernist um, uh architecture and and all the people who worked in each of the offices so the you know like um you know boyfriends and girlfriends of people who worked at ricks were working at chipperfields or claudio silverstream and it was a very kind of small network of people that you know all sort of knew each other and it was a really really kind of amazing exciting time uh and you know to have that opportunity to work you know once i realized who rick was you know, having that opportunity was just, I was like, oh, bloody hell, this guy is, is really bloody good. And um, and I sort of, uh, you know, I, I kind of threw myself into it. And and, and, and Rick was, a, I mean, he was just, it, it, he would sit for hours just with a pencil and a piece of paper in his room, sort of drawing and redrawing stuff. Um, and uh, he had a bit of a reputation for, for having a temper um you know if he was in a bad mood and you went in to see him about something um then there was you know a, a risk that he might kind of explode um and i heard a few people kind of you know i heard i heard them shouting at a few people and and then one day um i went into his office and uh and i think some of the guys in the office were trying to trying to wave at me don't go in at this moment don't go in you know because he's you know he's, he's he's not in a great mood and um and you know I, I wanted to talk to him about something and i showed him something and he oh man he exploded um and i was just i just stood there and i and i kind of listened to him and then i thought yeah i'm not taking this so i walked out and i, I went and i had a coffee um i went outside and i sat down had a coffee and then sort of i thought yeah i'm not gonna I'm not going to take this. So I, I started walking back to the office and as I was walking back to the office, Rick was coming out of the office. And, um, and I said to him, I said, he, he walked towards me and I, I kind of nodded my head and we stopped. And I just said to him, Rick, don't ever speak to me like that again. You know? And, uh, and he kind of looked at me and, and, and he was, he was a bit shocked. Um, I think, I don't think anyone had kind of maybe called him out on it. Um, and I don't think, you know, I think sometimes when people are like that, they don't realize themselves that, you know, they're having a big impact on people. And so I think the fact that I called them out on it never once did, you know, did it happen again? You know, it was, you know, from that point on, you know, we had a, a, a great relationship, you know, he was a great guy to work with. Um, and it was just a, it was a really, you know, a, a, maybe it was a it was a moment for him to kind of reflect on you know how he was kind of dealing with his own kind of stresses i i, I sort of finished working there and um rick uh, well, this is a funny story actually um 
So I, I was going to go back to Glasgow and do my diploma. And I'd been working with Rick doing this project. And my girlfriend at the time was working with Stirling Wilford, which was James Stirling's kind of um, office. And um, and I'd said to Rick, now I'm going to leave and I'm going to go back and do my diploma. And uh, and Rick had sort of said, well, can you not postpone it for a year? And um, and I was like, no, I just I, I want to go back and do it, Rick. And I can come back and forward now and again. Um, and so I just left it like that. And then I'm at home one night, my girlfriend comes home and, and she says to me, uh, she says something really weird. I mean, she was a, you know, a year out student as well, you know. She said something really weird happened today. I was like, what? And she said, you know, Michael Wilfer called me into his office and sort of said, look, you know, we don't normally do this, but, um, uh, you know, we'd really like you to stay on for another year at Sterling Wilford and, and, and postpone your you know, going back to Glasgow for your diploma. And and she was kind of like, wow, you know, oh, um, well, let me let me think about it. And she came and she told me that, and I, I went straight into the office next morning, and I said, I, I went straight into Rick's desk, and I said, did you call Michael Wilford yesterday? And he said, yep. <laughs> and I thought, bloody hell, you know. Um, I said, I'm going to, you know, it doesn't, you, you know, I'm still going to go back and do my diploma, you know, uh, but he was trying to, you know, he was trying to get my girlfriend to kind of, you know, he called Michael Wilford and sort of said, look, offer his girlfriend, a, um, a, you know, an extension to a job, you know, so we can get him to stay. And, I, you know, I was incredibly flattered, you know, um, but at the same time, I was sort of keen to kind of finish my um, education. And so... So, you know, I, Rick said to me, who, who, do you know anybody that can kind of take your place? And, um, and I'd, I'd studied this guy, Gavin, and, um, and I sort of said, well, actually Gavin would be really good. Um, you know, so I called up Gavin and um, he uh, came for an interview and got the job. And now he's the principal of Rick Mather Architects, you know, all these years later. He kind of uh, stayed with the practice and became a director and then sort of, after Rick passed away a few years ago, you know, Gavin took over the practice, you know, and so um, another really nice guy, actually, Gavin. Um, so I, I went back and did my diploma and, uh, you know, finished my diploma, which was great. Um, and then I didn't really know what to do. You know, I was kind of thinking, should, should I set up my my own, you know, because that's that's originally why I went ended up going to university. Um, you know, I, I kind of thought, you know, maybe I can become an architect and set up my own company. And that was when, you know, Chris Baggett, who um, had worked with me at Rick Mather's office, he called me up and said, look, I'm starting a company with um, uh, Oliver Solway, Dan Evans, um, it's called Softroom. And um, we really want you to come and join us. And, uh, and I kind of thought, well, this sounds interesting. I've got nothing better to do. Um, so, why don't I just go and, 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 and sort of help these guys out? And so I literally just packed my bags, came to London, and uh, <clears throat> we had a couple of small projects. We were actually renting um, a room, a big a big room from uh, from um, Ron Arad, um, who's the sort of furniture designer. Um, you know, he's got a studio in Chalk Farm, and uh, he had this big room next to it. And um, he gave us that room. We, well, he, we, we, we rented it from him um, and got to know Ron pretty well and his team. And, you know, we had this um, 
Ron added table tennis table in the garden, which was not flat. It was actually <laughs> curved. And we played table tennis on that every day. And Ron was uh, Ron was better than most because he designed the bloody thing. Um, so he'd obviously practiced a lot more on it. Um, and so we, we we started, you know, we, we started this company, Soft Room, not really kind of knowing where it would go. Um, and suddenly, right at the same time, and it, it, it was probably just by coincidence, uh, Wallpaper Magazine started, um, and and it was, it was one of the contacts of Oliver or something. He so they sort of said to us, "Look, we want to do some feature pieces on you know living in the future or you know conceptual ideas about housing or you know." And so we. We sort of said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll we'll do a kind of house of the future and invent this idea of a house in the future, um, and then you know they came back to us and said, oh, can you do another one? And can you do, another? and I think we did like the first ten wallpaper magazines, um, and wallpaper magazine was you know at that time it was like this new thing, but you know um, you know the guy who run it, Tyler, was 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 just so kind of focused. Um, on building this, um, uh, the profile of this magazine, and it's grown into this massive, you know, magazine, which is, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing magazine. But in the first kind of ten issues, we we did this um, conceptual design, which, which in a sense, sort of, you know, we were young practice, um, but we became really famous very quickly. You know, um, suddenly we were, you know, we designed this pen knife apartment, we designed a tree house, we designed a um, uh, an inflatable island that actually the the Portugal Biennale wanted to build a a, a full size version of it. It was like a kind of clamshell, and out of the bottom of it comes this mini atoll inflatable. And so um, yeah, it was all sorts of crazy ideas that we came up with, and and it was the early days of kind of rendering software, and and you know so we could build computer models and render them to make them look like well, what we thought at the time was was photographs I mean it's kind of laughable now um, but you know we would set a render going on a Monday and it wouldn't finish till Friday I mean the equivalent now would be setting a render going at 10 o'clock and at one minute plus 10 that render would be complete um, so you know we had all these kind of computers and and uh, and we were getting quite a lot of recognition you know we were you know, were in Vogue interiors uh, we even got invited to a couple of Vogue parties actually um, but you know, so it was sort of like, you know, we were this young, vibrant practice um, who were kind of up and coming and had all these kind of crazy ideas. Um, but the point we, we didn't have any work. <laughs> we were, I think we were getting one and a half thousand pounds for every concept that we did for wallpaper. Um, it was something like that. It was a ridiculously small amount of money. And, um, and, and, and so, so we couldn't kind of really survive. We had a couple of small projects. So, I kind of ran the small projects on site, and the guys were kind of constantly chasing more work and or doing conceptual stuff. And uh, and eventually, after a couple of years, I kind of thought I want to, I, I really want to get involved in big, big projects, you know. Um, and so we kind of parted ways, stayed friends, and kept working on stuff. Actually, we've, we've worked on, we've worked together over the last kind of you know, it must be 20 years now, uh, on and off over the last 20 years, you know, because we're, we're, we're kind of best friends. And so so I, I sort of said, I, I want to work in a big practice. I need to get experience of doing big projects. And I, I sort of targeted BDP, Building Design Partnership. 
Um, so I'd made a kind of conscious decision that I, you know, I needed to learn more. I needed to kind of, um, you know, go and do real projects, you know, and, and I was interested in kind of master planning and, and large scale projects. And so I kind of joined BDP, um, working with their sort of retail and master planning team and working with the residential team. I kind of floated BDP's subdivided into separate teams and I kind of floated amongst the teams. I didn't want to kind of tie myself down to any particular team. It's a little bit siloed, um, but I mean, it's an enormously professional practice that really look after the staff. I mean, the staff, I think, sort of have a share of ownership within the practice. Um, and again, really, really nice people. And and I dived into some really big master planning projects and sort of and learned how to master plan uh, and learned how to think about master planning. All right, Gary. So after BDP, you joined OMRS. But what I'm most interested in is the time you decided to start your own company. We keep talking about chapters for acceleration and for growth. And this must have been one of your biggest, mustn't it? When I'm on a project, I like to kind of dig in deep and analyze it and, and not get bogged down by the kind of decision-making processes that have happened up until that point. Because at a certain point, the project has to design itself, you know, the project has its own life. And, you know, there is an optimum way of doing that project that, you know, isn't encumbered by kind of maybe some odd decisions that were made at an early stage. Um, and so, you know, it, it was interesting. But at that point, I kind of thought, I need to set up on my own. That was the point where I kind of thought, yeah, I've got to, I've got to go out on my own, you know. So, so yeah, that 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 was a so you know the chapter of kind of you know working straight from school, then going to university, and then you know soft room BDP and OMS before, you know, so that's three kind of as you say, it's kind of like three chapters before I get to the point where I'm kind of 31, I think, and um, and about to set up my own business. So what's the name of this business now? Uh, so that was that was a company I set up and I called it Colab Architects. Um, and it, it was C-O hyphen L-A-B Architects. If you're ever going to set up a company, do not put a hyphen in the name because trying to get a website, you know, <laughs> and tell people, you know, you can't just say to someone, oh, it's, uh, you know, uh, soft room. You know, it's like one word. You've got to always spell it out, you know. Um, All right, Gary. So that was a so when I did I my research, the first thing everybody said is Gary is a deep thinker. He won't take anything on face value. Do you recognise that trait in yourself? Um, I suppose, like, even from when I was pretty young, I was always sort of interested in sort of pulling things apart, putting things back together, exploring ideas, and and being the person that made the decisions, I think as well, you know, it's sort of, you know, I, I wanted to be the one that was responsible for the decisions that I made. Um, and that's what sort of having your own practice enables you to do. Um, you know, you, you, the buck stops with you. Um, and I really, I really kind of enjoyed that. And I, I kind of enjoyed, you know, how complex architecture is and this sort of, you know, it's almost like a puzzle, you know, where you're putting together the kind of sociological, you know, the spatial, you know, the technical and the sort of construction um, to create something that is going to kind of change the way that people live. So you've got control of the projects, you choose the clients, but interesting careers are never about plain sailing, are they? Do you remember what was the biggest hurdle in that time? 
we had a great team, great bunch of people working with me. And then, you know, global financial crisis. Um, that hit like, uh, you know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, everyone was aware the global financial crisis had happened, but it didn't really kind of sink in until, you know, maybe six months or a year after the crash. Um, and then suddenly all the projects I was working on dried up and uh, and I had this team of people and and no work um, but everyone was sort of saying oh work is this project's going to start next month this project's going to start next month and I didn't really want to let anyone go and so I probably held on to people way too long um, and so um, you know in the end I, I kind of had to let people go and I was kind of left thinking right okay well there's no there's no projects at this scale because I worked at a particular scale where it was maybe about, you know, developments that had about 40 apartments to 60 apartments or maybe 10 apartments to 60 apartments or something like that. Um, and all of that scale had gone. The only stuff that was left was the really big, you know, long term 10 year projects. And so, so I was kind of left not knowing really what to do, you know. Um, I'd, I'd kind of looked around for work, but I didn't really want to work for another practice. Um, I didn't want to go back into working in a design practice. So I was I was at a party one night and um, a friend of mine that I talked with and, and his friend, a guy called Barry Legg, uh, was at the same party and we got chatting and he was the director at an interior design firm called Johnson Naylor. Um, and he sort of, we were chatting away and, um, and he sort of said to me, oh yeah, we have terrible problems, you know, as interior designers trying to kind of convince the architects to change their plans. You know, um, the architects are always sort of saying to us, no, it's not possible to do this. or it's not possible to do that. And I said, well, you know, to be honest, I mean, I've spent the last sort of 10 years sort of, you know, doing some really complex sites and, and, and figuring out some really you know, difficult schemes. And he said, well, you know, maybe it would be good to have you help us, you know. Um, and so I said, well, let's 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 meet up. And we, we sort of met up and I met Brian and Fiona. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that there's a kind of team of four there, Brian Johnston, Fiona Naylor, um, Neil Pryor and, and, and Barry Legg. And, um, you know, they're all kind of similar level, um, uh, director level. Um, but, you know, the kind of driving force was really Fiona. Um, in the business uh, and they had been doing a lot of interior design work for um, you know big development companies and um, we sat down and we, we we chatted and and they sort of said look you know architecture isn't our bag you know um, you know we're, we're, we're interior designers but we know how to plan apartments and we know how to you know um, plan buildings but you know it would be really useful to have an architect beside us you know that could take what we're given and and try and improve on it and um and maybe we'd get a better product you know at the end of the day and so so i kind of joined them as a director for seven years i was kind of doing that with johnson naylor working with arjun uh, working with barclay homes working with uh, mount anvil with canary wharf with um helico bar you know, I did South Bank Place, the towers at South Bank Place. I did Newfoundland Place, the tower at Canary Wharf. Um, I, I think I did about 20 towers across London. Um, and I did the residential projects at King's Cross. I did a bit at um, uh, Earl's Court. 
um, and uh, yeah, lots of lots of different projects. Um, and it was it was it was difficult because you're you know you're taking an, what another architect has done, and sort of saying, well, you know, it's not as good as it could be. Here's something that is better, <clears throat> and really, you know, s some architects don't take very well to that. Um, and other architects are completely open to it. And, and I think I've kind of realized that the better the architect, the more open, or the more I kind of thought the architect was better, you know, the better the architect, the more open they were to the changes that I was proposing in the project, you know. Um, and I think that's a really important thing because I think even in teaching, you know, and when you're getting hard, hard criticism, you know, the important thing is the project is not, your ego it's not you know what you think of it it's 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 what's best for the project you know what's best for the final user experience you know when someone's going to go and live there you know how can you make that the best experience that anyone can have within that building you know um and that's where the kind of social aspect spatial planning spatial organization you know political game playing you know, scale and massing of the building, construction techniques and technology. You know, it's this huge kind of puzzle that is just, you know, like a Rubik's cube that you're you're, you're trying to solve. Um, and there's no kind of right or wrong answer, but there are better answers than others, you know. And so, so you know, we had some difficult moments with architects who were completely against it and fought back. And, um, you know, but in the end, I think, you know, the the, the I think I was at, there was two kind of examples, I suppose, that, you know, stick out. One one was um, uh, this tower, South Bank Place, it's called CIT. Um, and KPF had done a scheme, and it was an existing building. And uh, and I really like KPF. John Bushell and I got on really well, and, um, and they, they're a great practice to work with. And um, I looked at the plans, and... And it looked to me like the services engineer hadn't really figured out the services, so they just put loads of boxes on the plans for all the service risers. Um, and I kind of looked at it and I thought, I could probably draw every pipe on this plan. And so I kind of dug in and I redrew the plan and I put every single pipe that needed to go in and every single duct that needed to go in on the plan. So I kind of did the service engineer's drawing. Um, you know, remembering that you know, I'd, I'd spent nine years as a technologist, you know, and I was doing sort of structural calculations and, and also doing kind of services, engineering calculations and stuff. And so um, I drew every pipe on the plan and then I took it back to the architects and the engineers and the client and sort of said, look, you know, I've replanned this. I've found 20 square meters per floor on this building that we can add into the apartments. And not only does it add net area, it makes those apartments much much better apartments and so you know service engineers kind of looked at it and they were like mm, um yeah i can't really see a problem doing this you know and uh and then the client kind of ran the calculations and you know after you kind of took in the additional build cost for that floor area and the sales value i mean it literally added 20 million pounds profit to the to the development you know and that was that was pure profit you know it wasn't you know, just additional value. It was, it was, it was, it was pure profit on the profit that they had, they had already kind of earmarked for the development, and um, you know that was just kind of one example. And I think in most of the projects, you know, I think I was probably adding ten to twenty percent more value to the scheme 
And that's the useful thing about, you know, taking a project which is already designed and then analyzing it and reconfiguring it. It's much easier for me to do that than it is for the architect to design it from scratch because there's all sorts of, you know, odd decisions or bad decisions that are made along the way with the client and the consultants that they arrive at a particular proposition, you know. Um, so, so it wasn't, it, it's not, it's not my, my job's not that difficult, you know, it's just, you, you, you've just got to dig into it and, and question everything. I think, I mean, it's sort of, you know, when the lift engineer sort of said that, you know, that wouldn't work, I, I, I really wanted to understand myself why it wouldn't work. Okay, Gary. So we're about to embark on your next big move, aren't we? You spent seven years now with Johnson Naylor and then you get tapped on the shoulder by one of your current clients the Goliath from America promising to bring the bill-to-rent market, or as they call it, multifamily style, to the UK, Greystar. Tell me a little bit more about sort of how they took that Johnson Naylor and, and what landed on your desk first when you first arrived at Greystar. They were kind of upset. You know, we'd built a great team and, you know, a number of years working together. And so I sort of thought, okay, what's Greystar going to be like, you know? Uh, and by the new year, I was sort of ready to start. That was the kind of move from Johnson Naylor into Greystar. Um, and the first project at Greystar was this project at Greenford in uh, West London, where they had one architect on the project. They'd been trying to figure out a master plan for the scheme, but it, it sort of, it wasn't really coming together. There was, you know, there wasn't a great direction to the project. And I, I suppose the first thing I sort of said was, well, you know, this is a big project, you know, it's, it was a site that had planning consent for 500 apartments. By the time we kind of finished the design and got the planning approval, it was a site that had planning consent for 2,100 apartments, 100,000 square feet of office space, 100,000 square feet of retail, a health center, and a school, you know. And so, you know, the scale of the project was was enormous. And I, I could see that the scale of the project was enormous just because of the site, you know, but the fact that it only had like 500 apartments on it um, at, the, at the beginning, and then I'm looking at this site and I was just looking at it, and this is a much, much bigger scheme, you know. Um, and I think I realized that as well, you know, I mean, we all kind of realized that at Greystar, which is why we kind of, you know, saw it as a fantastic opportunity to kind of, you know, introduce the product designed from scratch. Um, because obviously the towers that Greystar had bought from Gallagher were adapted from a for sale um, development would be an opportunity to design a multi-family or build to rent as it's called, um, building from scratch. And I, I think <clears throat> you know that was you know that that's such an amazing opportunity. I mean, incredible. Um, and thing I can say, this is for one act. Um, we need you know at least five architects. You know. To, to, to work on this project. And um, and I think everyone was horrified by that thought because I think, you know, most people think, God, controlling one architect is difficult. Never mind trying to control five of them. Um, but I kind of thought it's a great opportunity to kind of, you know, get new ideas and share ideas with, you know, different architects and, and kind of work collaboratively to bring this new product to the market. And so, so we, we kind of narrowed it down to, you know, a couple of people that I knew um, as architects. So Alex Ely at May and, um, and then and Hawkins Brown. Uh, HTA were already um, 
the architects on the project and Flanagan Lauren already done a planning consent for a small office bin which is a sort of grade two listed building on the site um, and then we brought in an American practice called Slice just to kind of mix things up a bit really I mean it was like let's throw a whole hodgepodge of people together and and and, and try and drive this thing um, to, to a great conclusion and so the other thing I also said was like if we do this I, I want the planners to be a big part of it you know I want the planners to be at the design meetings you know and so which again is kind of a little bit unheard of because I, I think most planning consultants would rather keep the plan arm's length and then sort of say right let's show the planners this when we're ready um, but I was I was like yeah but they've got to be part of the process I want to bring I want them to be engaged in the process and so so we set up this sort of workshop every week with um, the, the the architects and the planners and you know literally took every Wednesday all day I think we we spent the whole day with the architects and the planners came in, in the afternoon you know there was a whole team of people I was working on the design side we had um, another team of people working on the political side trying to kind of you know explain what it was that we did and as a group we kind of pulled the whole thing together and and in the end the GLA issued revised guidance on the points that were pretty much equivalent to the policy points that we challenged um, and that was a made kind of satisfying you know that we had kind of made a difference you know that, that big you know we'd, we'd come into this sort of blank site we'd brought all of these kind of disparate people together you know we'd worked really hard as a team and then we'd actually kind of transformed you know the way the government even looked at you know this type of housing um, and you know that was sort of you know that's what kind of you know, drew me into Graystar, and then I kind of thought, you know, this is big. Graystar as a company is based in the U.S. You know, and originally grew in the U.S., but they were starting to offices all over the world. I knew that we would face the same challenges in every single country. You know, because no other country had professionally managed rentable housing. You know, and. So when we opened an office in the Netherlands, the Greystar sort of asked me, "Can you can you have a look at what they're doing there? You know, and try and you know guide them and and help the architects kind of develop projects." And I was like, "Yeah, no, I'm quite happy to help." You know, and so helping that team, and then you know they opened an office in um, Mexico, and they asked me to look at what they were doing there, and then we opened an office. I think the next one was probably um, Australia and China, probably opened around about the same time. Um, and I kind of started digging into what the policies were in those regions. And then it's just grown. It's sort of, you know, Ireland, you know, um, Chile, Brazil, um, Peru, we're even looking at um, Japan, France, Germany, Spain, uh, <coughs> Ireland. And and I suppose my, my kind of, you know, my role kind of grew with the expansion internationally of the business. Uh, and if I just pause you there, Garrick, I've got yeah. to ask, ask a question. Hmm. To anyone listening to this now who's in, in any one of those trees, they must be thinking, well, I find it hard enough to master the complexities of my territory, <laughs> be it London, Chile, sort of, uh, uh, sort of Dublin. How's this guy yeah. managed to, to learn so much about so many? I think when I started at Greystar, I was the only one employed as a design person you know, design director in the whole company of kind of, I think at the time, 10,000 people. Um, there may have been one other, um, but, 
you know, I kind of thought, well, actually, we probably need more people who own the product and who are designers who can challenge the architects and they can challenge the policy um, and, you know, they can help to develop within that region. So, you know, I've got a great sort of team of people now that, you know, in each country that I sort of am on calls with for a few hours and we talk about the projects that we're working on, what's the best idea for this project or that project, how can we adapt the design, can we improve the design? And and for me, it's sort of like, I might be sort of, you know, um, the MD of all design, but I really am support staff. I always think hierarchies work the opposite way around. You know, the people at the coalface are the important ones and everybody else right up to the CEO is really support staff. I think in the end, you know, you've got to kind of empower the people who are working at the coalface, you know, the young development team, you know, encourage them to kind of be a, a sort of a mentor or, a, you know, um, a knowledge base or, or a sort of guide for them and, and give them the feedback to, you know, help them deliver the best project possible. Okay. Let me ask you this question. I, I asked you at the outset if you believed you've been successful. Hmm. Do you have more to achieve? And if so, what's next? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating because, um, you know, I've been with Greystar, I think it's the fifth year. Um, and it feels like we're getting started, you know, I mean, it really feels like we're only getting started. I mean, we're, we're starting to see our first projects coming up out of the ground, each of the sort of 15 countries that we're in. Um, and, you know, we've still got so much to, to learn and so much to do. Um, you know, for me, that's, you know, that, that's going to occupy my mind for a long, long time. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's this sort of ideal scenario for, for me because I'm kind of heavily involved in the design um, and working with great teams of people. Um, and, and now I've got, you know, like 50 puzzles in front of me, you know, but I've got lots of people that are working on the same puzzle. And so we're all trying to get there together and I'm kind of trying to add in where I can add in. Um, and, you know, other team members are sort of adding in where they add in. So, you know, I think our growth is probably going to be pretty fast, I think, in all of the issues coming out. I mean, in the US, we're, I think we're starting 40 projects this year. And I, I could imagine that, you know, internationally, we're probably going to surpass that in a few years. That's the really interesting thing. There's a lot of growth and challenges to happen. And then I think there's... You know, housing in itself has become more affordable, you know, in terms of housing and sale housing. And, and some developers are starting to tackle that. You know, the collective have been doing sort of micro housing in London so that they can offer, you know, a lower price point to people who still want to live in a reasonably central location in London. And interestingly, the Netherlands are doing that for years. You know, they've, the Netherlands government has been supportive of micro housing you know for for a long time you know it's a kind of somewhere between student housing and and full-on housing and so the interesting thing about being across all these markets is i can see you know why policies have been done in different markets you sort of see well why are they not doing that policy in that market you know at the moment i'm sort of saying to the netherlands team we need to figure out why the netherlands government made a decision a long time ago to adopt micro housing as a strategy to affordability you know because you know if that government has adopted that strategy then that's something that you can talk to other governments about because um, there is a sort of you know there's a there's a worry 
uh, rightfully so. There's a worry about you know putting people into smaller and smaller boxes, um, and you know the big difference between what we might do as a micro housing product. Um, or what a professionally managed micro housing provider might provide, and and what you know someone m might do as a conversion of an office building is quite different because, you know, you're getting a lot of amenities, you're providing a lot of staff support, the people who live in the building, you're doing events, you know, it's a much more interactive experience. It's not sort of stable into small rabbit hutches and forgetting about them, you know, um, you know, our amenity spaces, people. The design to live in, you know, that's the living room. For me, I mean, I, I kind of want to be riding along on this sort of growth that we're doing, and and we're now looking at introducing a product in the market. We've been looking at micro housing for a long time, trying to understand where we want to be in the market and make sure that our product is a great product. Um, and so we're we're kind of, you know, um, experimenting and analysing. Um, uh, that at the moment, and and that's a you know that's a sort of future future plan, and then also we're also ample opportunity to you know play with different ideas of how we design our buildings, um, how we kind of structure them, how we manage them, um, and that's a kind of almost like an infinite puzzle um, in a sense. Okay, so Gary, final question then: What do you wish you'd learned earlier in your career? It's a difficult one. Um, because I, I, I get I get kind of excited and I want to sort of explain or actually it's better to sit back in a lot more than um, than just jump straight in um, and I was very guilty of that I think in my early career I think you know that was one of the, the biggest ones you know for me time is the most sort of valuable thing that you have in your life and you don't want to waste it on things that you're not proud of you know I want to look at everything I've done and sort of say well I didn't I didn't waste time on that. Yeah, those are the kind of things I think that I've sort of learned as I've been going along. Well, Gary, I've got, I've got to draw it to a close now, but thank you so much for your time. And I know that our audience are going to really, really enjoy it as much as I have here sat back and enjoying the story. Oh, thank you. This podcast was brought to you by McDonald & Company, the leading real estate recruiter. To discuss any matters with Nick Carman, please contact him via the email address in your show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episode as it's released. <laughs>